It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 28th, 2009. Boy, somebody turned the freezer on outside. We Californians are not used to this cold weather. What? This is not how you're supposed to have the end of September. It's cold, windy. Ah, what an adventure. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And I serve you by dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And, uh, well, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way as well. I mean, what's the point in doing this if you can't enjoy it, at least to some degree? So... (laughs) And uh, you, if you're listening on Pirate Christian Radio, I can officially, without hesitation, well, we the, say, and I should reiterate this, uh, Pirate Christian Radio is the number one Christian talk radio station on the Live 365 radio network. <laughs> and it's really nice to see the, uh, the radio station, the word getting out about the station for our listenership to grow. So that people can hear sound biblical doctrine and uh, hear the great news of Christ and him crucified for your sins. Uh, Thank you all for you listening on Pirate Christian Radio for tuning in. All right. It's cold here in Indiana. I I don't know what happened. It's like a couple of days ago, the weatherman said, hey, and on Monday... It, it uh, it's going to be you know fall is going to get here and and, and it's going to it's going to get cold and he wasn't kidding i mean the high today is like 64 degrees it's windy outside so we have some kind of a wind chill thing going on and the low tonight is going to be like 44 degrees <laughs> now those of you sitting there going yeah but you live in indiana well listen i'm a transplanted indianan i i was i moved here from Southern California, and in Southern California, like the you know the it September, it's still like a hundred degrees outside. Here, it's like really, really cold. Well, at least it's, this, I, I know I'm complaining about it being cold, but the reality is, is that this is nothing compared to what's going to be happening. And they're saying Wednesday night, it's going to be like in the thirties. As far <laughs> this is supposed to be this cold anyway. <clears throat> so I know those of you out there just think I'm a complete baby. And, it, you know, I am. And But, you know, it's kind of nice, though, you know, wearing a long sleeve uh, shirts, drinking tea all day long. It's it's kind of, I don't know, academically cool, you know. Anyway, so I, I just had to share that with you all. And it's official. I've lost. I have now since I've started exercise and I began exercising. Uh, almost daily, uh, back toward the end of May. Since I started doing that, I have now officially lost ten pounds. I cannot believe it. It's actually working. I'm walking. I'm watching what I'm eating. I'm exercising. I'm on my total gym three, four days a week, uh, and uh, it's it. And I'm losing weight. I can't believe it. You know, if I continue doing this, I'm, I'm gonna. I, you know, I'll be half the man I used to be. Yeah, I write my own material for my uh, for my jokes. Just uh, you know, just want to let you know that. So anyway, it's cold here. I'm losing weight, and uh, you know, this is, could be a bad combo. 
because uh, as I lose more weight, then what will happen is, is I'll actually get colder in the wintertime. But, it, you know, if I lose all this weight, it'll make my summers a little bit more enjoyable. Because i got to tell you, being overweight in summertime weather, especially in Indiana, when uh, their, their hot periods are punctuated with humidity... That's just not a good combo. Just I, you know, I got to tell you that is not a flattering thing for me. And uh, boy, you know, so I, I guess there'll be some benefits. So anyway, all right, we've. I'm looking. I, I got to tell you, I think I've got two uh, two days worth of programming worked out for Fighting for the Faith. And uh, l- looking at today's program, what do we got lined up here? Let's see. I have an update on the meeting of the uh, ELCA's Lutheran Corps. They met uh, here in uh, Fishers, Indiana, headquarters of Pirate Christian Radio, uh, on Friday and Saturday. And got to tell you, uh, I got some mixed feelings about uh, this 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 group of Lutherans. And you know, I think they're on the right track and on the wrong track all at the same time. I'll give you some details. Got a headline here. You remember uh, there has been some hoopla in the media about. Uh, the last Friday, apparently, there were supposed to be 50,000 Muslims that were going to march on Capitol Hill. Well, only 3,000 showed up. And uh, so somebody's has some explaining to do. I mean, you know, by any by any means whatsoever. I mean, if you if you're promising 50,000 people to show up and 3,000 people show up instead, that that yeah, that qualifies as a fail i mean it may actually be an epic fail well they're not the muslims uh, the leaders who organized the uh, this march on washington where they were expecting 50,000 muslims to show up and only 3,000 showed up they're blaming christians for the low attendance i, I got news on that and uh, and then we got some extreme prophetic news uh, uh we <laughs> We got a, a, a miraculous jewelry testimony, and also, I mean, as since we're you know it's now uh, officially getting into the fall season. October starts this week, which means you know everyone has Halloween on their mind. Uh, from the Extreme Prophetic website, we've got some very practical information on how to break witchcraft curses. In case yeah, you you may not know this, you may be suffering from witchcraft curses. So uh, we've got some. Uh, uh, Practical information from the Extreme Prophetic website on how to break a witchcraft curse. Oh, man. <sighs> and uh, let's see here. I've also, we're going to be, I'm going to be reading an op-ed piece from the Christian Post called Want the Abundant Life? Question mark. Do you want the abundant life? Well, we're going to read this uh, op-ed piece that is supposedly going to uh, talk about uh, what you need to do, what you need to do. Did I mention it was what you need to do to experience the abundant life? Kind of do a little... Um, diagnostic on that using law and gospel. Um, a quick piece from Chuck Colson. He's denouncing the therapeutic church model. I think he's got some valid points there and maybe one or two that I would tweak. And then our sermon review today is from Mark Batterson, who is one of the uh, darling rock stars of the uh, purpose-driven uh, church planter movement. Uh, and uh, he's got a church there in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, the, the name of the sermon we're going to be reviewing from him is called The Pearl of Great Price. Now, he's going to be doing a sermon on the parable of the Pearl of Great Price, and we're going to be uh, analyzing it in view of law and gospel. So uh, lots of stuff lined up for today's program. You definitely don't want to miss it. I do recommend those of you who, especially you know, myself, you know, 
who are living in more, some of the more northern regions of the northern hemisphere, uh, fuzzy bunny slippers now are okay. You just want to let you know that. Uh, make yourself comfortable. We got a lot of ground to comfort uh, to cover. Funny buzzy sl- slippers are fine. And uh, if you would like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that either. And uh, with that, we're going to uh, dive into our program proper. Uh, <clears throat> A little bit of news here. The headline from the Indianapolis Star reads, Lutheran Conference Could End in Breakup. Sounds like a bad relationship gone awry. Um, This is by Robert King of the Indianapolis Star. He writes, um, In Fisher's uh, national group uh, against gay clergy, ruling will discuss leaving church. To uh, the Reverend Mark Chavez, he and other Lutherans from across the country gathering in Fisher's this weekend are not rebels walking away from their denomination. As the Pennsylvania minister sees it, they are faithful followers of the Bible responding to their denomination's decision to walk away from them. Um, uh, today, that would be Saturday when this appeared, uh, more than 1,400 members of the Lutheran Coalition for Reform began a two-day conference that could lead to a full uh, uh, or partial pullout from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. By the way, the, uh, the end result of that was that uh, they've decided they're going to wait a year. They're going to wait one year before they uh, decide whether or not to... Uh, um, to pull out of the ELCA completely. Now, now listen. These um, these remarks by Mark Chavez were all fine and good. However, um, in watching the media coverage of the uh, ELCA event that took place at uh, the Geist Holy Spirit uh, Catholic Church there at the Geist in Fishers, Indiana, um, I, I, I got to tell you, I was uh, discouraged. I'll tell you why I was discouraged, because I saw one of the speakers was a, a female clergy woman, uh, basically speaking about the heresy of the ELCA church. I found that to be um, rather ironic, a woman pastor discussing the problems of the ELCA and in, in their views regarding uh, homosexual clergy. Uh, well, that just kind of... Um, the phrase that came to mind was the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, anyway, um, so let me read a different uh, story here from uh, the Alternative Proposed for Lutherans by Robert King. The leader of a reform group within the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America said the denomination has fallen into heresy because of its acceptance of same-sex relationships, but he stopped short of calling for the formation of a new Lutheran church. Instead, the Reverend Paul Spring called upon the more than 1,200 reformers uh, that met on Friday and Saturday in Fishers to form a new freestanding synod that he defined as an alternative form of church. Exactly what that will look like is a work in progress, Spring said, but it will be a, a body of Lutherans, some still in the denomination, some outside it, who share tra- a traditional view of marriage and biblical, uh, and biblical interpretation. Um, again, that's problematic because uh, it's obvious that uh, people who were in attendance and speaking from the dais at the Lutheran Corps meeting there in uh, Fishers, Indiana, um, well, they don't exactly hold to a traditional I- interpretation of Scripture because they still allow or still are in favor of female clergy. 
Quote, I've had some difficulty describing it to others. The gathering of reformers known as the Lutheran uh, Corps, Coalition for Reform, came together in response to the ELCA's decision last month to allow Lutherans in same-sex relationships to serve as clergy and to open the door to blessings of same-sex unions. Spring said the freestanding synod would involve churches, reform groups, and individual Lutherans who object to the new policy on gays. Like himself, Spring said many will have uh, paper-thin relations relationships with the denomination, choosing to stay with their local church but making no contributions to uh, uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the, you know, the, the overall uh, the national group itself. But the new synod whose uh, constitution will be up for vote will help uh, form new churches, train and assist pastors, and engage in mission work on its own. Now, it's important to note that um, the overall decision was to wait for 12 months before they started this new synod. And if they if they ended up starting a new synod or some new Lutheran group, it's obvious that what's going to happen is, is that that's, that group is going to be somewhere to the left of the current uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and somewhere to the right of uh, the current ELCA. Um, is, what is that? What what do I predict then for them? They might get off to a good start, but eventually they'll end up ultimately oozing their way more towards uh, the ELCA uh, as the years progress. Why? Because they say they're holding to uh, a traditional biblical interpretation that the, that the Bible is normative. And yet it's obvious that there are female clergy among their group. So uh, they obviously have some problems uh, with how they're interpreting scriptures. At the same time, I mean, what we're hearing is is that the ELCA is basically imploding and that there's uh, one church after another church after another church is uh, stepping away from the ELCA or disavowing their association with it. This is uh, this is actually a bad news for uh, members of the ELCA. And the ELCA did have uh, people that were there from headquarters in attendance at the uh, Lutheran Corps uh, meeting to basically watch how things uh, were going. Uh, let's see here. All right. He said, this is Paul, he, uh, Paul Spring. He said uh, he would not rule out a more complete break from the ELCA in the next two to five years. Spring, who received a standing ovation from the crown of Lutherans from 44 states at Holy Spirit Catholic Church in Geist, minced no words. Quote, God is calling us to do something. He said the ELCA has fallen into heresy. Yeah, he's right. Robert and Carol Larson, both in their 70s and lifelong Lutherans from South Bend, said they were sorely disappointed by the denomination's move on same-sex marriage. Carol Larson's family has been uh, part of the Lutheran Church since arriving from Sweden in the 19th century, yet she expressed a sinking feeling about the future of the church. We just don't understand why the leadership did this, she said. Uh, Don Bowden, 54, Greenfield, was uh, very disappointed in a decision that he said essentially declassifies a sin. That's right. They voted against God's word. I think it was a step away from biblical teaching, Bowden said. The church doesn't want to take a stand, and it's uh, leaving it up to each individual, and I, I, and I feel it's wrong. Well, <clears throat> Again, you know, some positive news and at the same time some not-so-positive news. It just basically sounds to me like, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to reaffirm the biblical stance on um, same-sex marriage and are trying to distance themselves and feel like they need to do something in regard to the fact uh, that the ELCA has voted against God, has basically, I've said this on other occasions and I'll say it again, 
the ELCA has officially given God the middle finger as it relates to the sin of homosexuality. But see, that's just a symptom of the bigger cause. The, the, the root cause of that really comes back to the fact that, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the ELCA unbuckled themselves from God's word. Uh, they they bought into higher criticism and liberal interpretive methods. The Bible no longer was authoritative. It was a book of mythologies and moral stories. And as a result of it, it, it no the, the God's word had no authority. You know, they didn't see it as authoritative when it comes came to these things. So it's just a matter of time before the pressures of the culture uh you know won won the day regarding homosexuality. They're not they're not beholden to God's words, they're beholden to uh, the culture. <clears throat> All right. Switching gears here. Uh, from uh, one, let's see, what's the, uh, onenewsnow.com, we, uh, the, the, commenting on an AP news story, the, the headline reads, Muslims blame Christians for low numbers. <clears throat> yeah, let's see. <laughs> uh, Washington, D.C., organizers of Friday's Islam on Capitol Hill event blame opposition by some Christian groups for a much smaller turnout than they anticipated. Estimates of the number of Muslims who actually gathered for prayer, lectures, and reading of the Quran outside the U.S. Capitol range from 1,000 to 3,000, which is a fraction of the 50,000 that the organizers expected. Um, Muslims who did participate heard calls to repent from a handful of Christian activists. So basically, it's it, listen, it's, it's the fault of you Christians out there that um, more Muslims didn't show up. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, we Christians are oppressing Muslims, and and uh, they obviously felt that they were afraid that if they showed up, that we would pull out our swords and cause them to uh, to turn to Christianity at the end of a sword, and therefore risking, you know, because of the grave risk to their life uh, by the militant Christianity, uh, these Muslims, uh, you know, they they decided to. Avoid coming out in public and and rallying at this event, and it's therefore the, the it's the fault of militant Christianity that these Muslims did not show up in in the numbers expected. <clears throat> yeah, I'm having a hard time selling this one myself. <sighs> Organizers of Friday's Muslim prayer event on Capitol Hill were hoping about fifty thousand would attend. Instead, media outlets estimated the crowd size at somewhere between one and three thousand. Many Christians had expressed concern over the so-called Islam on Capitol event, uh, Capitol Hill event. Among those concerns was the fact that one of the key organizers, Hassan Abdullah, was part of the legal team that represented one of the men convicted of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. He also represented a Baltimore Muslim cab driver who pleaded guilty to conspiracy to aid a terrorist group. Leading up to the event, Christian evangelist Lou Engel was questioned by the Washington Post as saying it was, quote, much more than a nice Muslim gathering. It's an invocation of spiritual powers of ideology that doesn't have the same values that our nation has had. And ahead of the family and ahead and the head of the Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, called the event, quote, a wake up call for the church and warned that if Christians don't fill the void, that's in this nation with the truth, it will be filled with something else. Now, I've got to pause there for a second. Normally, I don't find myself agreeing too too readily with the, the folks over at the Family Research Council. However, in this particular case, I agree with Tony Perkins, but probably not the same way that he thinks. Okay, Tony Perkins, you know, considered this a wake-up call. Well, 3,000 Muslims showing up at Capitol Hill is uh, hardly a wake-up call. I think the wake-up call goes to the Muslims. Um... 
it, again, this falls into the category of epic fail. And but of course it's our fault because they, they obviously these Muslims just feared for their lives because of you know they were afraid some you know Christian suicide bombers were going to blow themselves up in you know in the middle of the crowd and so you know to uh, to, to save themselves from being murdered and and martyred uh, in, in such a in such cold blood these uh, Muslims obviously uh, you know needed to take extreme measures to protect their life and limb. And uh, didn't show up at the event. That's why they weren't there. But anyway, <clears throat> I digress. Um, Tony Perkins says that uh, that this is a wake-up call for the church and a warning that if Christians don't fill the void that's in this nation with the truth, it will be filled with something else. He's absolutely right. See, the problem is, is that, uh, Tony, listen, um, uh, the evangelical, uh, e- American evangelicalism is way too preoccupied with doing something else than filling the truth void with uh, you know the proclamation of uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, they're off in Oprah, Doctor Phil, La La Land, and they're too busy trying to build big churches by telling people what they want to hear. I mean, because is basically they worship numbers. Uh, they think that God automatically is blessing their church if it's growing, and the way they're growing their church is by completely watering down the biblical message. And not doing biblical expository preaching, not proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, but instead preaching to meet felt needs. You know, because, listen, Americans are pragmatic people. They need something that works. They don't want – who wants to hear about the, the bloody, crucified, uh, dead Jewish guy hanging on a cross? Ew, yuck, that's gross. They need something more practical. They need stuff like, you know, you know practical and applicable tips to spicing things up in the bedroom. They need better career advice, information on how to balance their their finances. They need information on how to get their kids to toe the line and behave better. You know, they they need they need information on how to make their careers more satisfying. Listen, Christian American evangelicalism, I'm sorry, but they're AWOL. They're off doing something else. And uh, as a result of it, you can't call on American evangelicalism to stand up to the threat of Islam, even if only 3,000 Muslims showed up. But uh, you can't expect American evangelicalism to stand up to the threat of Islam and to do the the very dangerous work, the very dangerous and uh, politically incorrect and, um, let's say, uh, uh, it could potentially harmful work of proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, proclaiming the exclusive truth claims of Jesus Christ, that there, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved, that's Jesus Christ, or proclaiming that uh, that if, if you do not believe that Christ Jesus is who he claimed to be, that you will die in your sins. Uh, you, you can't expect American evangelicalism to do that. I mean, first of all, that could really, really, really wreck uh, the number of people showing up Sunday after Sunday, and it would it would basically jeopardize, uh, you know, the already dwindling uh, tithing money that's coming in, and make it make it so that these big mega churches, you know, would could potentially lose their revenue stream, and as a result of losing their revenue stream, they would end up, you know, defaulting on their mortgages for their big multi. A billion dollar camp high, um, you know, that you just can't expect him to do something like that. Instead, you know, we got like, uh, 
you know, Rick Warren over there at Saddleback Church, rather than proclaiming the truth, uh, what, what Rick Warren had uh, Miroslav Volf of uh, Emergent Church fame, uh, you know, there at, at uh, on a civic, basically a civil forum, um, you know, uh, talking about reconciliation. You see, well, that that's that's more popular. But forget the fact that uh, Miroslav Volf is a heretic. Um, he Miroslav Volf is a student of uh, of. Jurgen Moltmann, and he's the uh, theological mentor of Tony Jones. And uh, in fact, let's see here, Miroslav Volf um, from the PBS Religion and Ethics Forum interview with Bob Abernathy of PBS. Uh, we Abernathy said Volf says that in a world of 1.3 billion Muslims and 2 billion Christians, a dialogue between the two faiths is of urgent importance. Uh, this week, he joined other Christian and Muslim scholars as they sought greater mutual understanding by studying their respective scriptures together. I asked Wolf about the differences among the religions. Uh, Dr. Wolf of Yale uh, Divinity School said, The Christian God is different, is different than the Muslim God, but it's not other than the Muslim God. I do believe that Muslims and Christians and Jews pray to the same God. And yet they understand who God is in significantly different ways. Oh, that was so, so emergent of Miroslav Volf to say that. And yeah, so Miroslav Volf, um, who just was one of the special speakers at uh, Saddleback's uh, latest civil forum on reconciliation, was one of the speakers invited by Rick Warren. And Miroslav Volf has made it clear that he thinks that Muslims and Jews and Christians all pray to the same God. So coming back to uh, what Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council said, uh, that he said that the, the fact that Muslims were supposedly marching on um, Washington, all 3,000 of them, he, he considered that a wake-up call and a warning that if Christians don't fill the void that is in this nation with the truth, it will be filled with something else. See, the problem is, Tony, uh, the Christian church is already being filled with a different truth, so much so that we're inviting uh, men who think that uh, Muslims and Jews and Christians all pray to the same God are speaking at uh, the, one of the, some of the largest mega churches in the country, <clears throat> Saddleback Church being uh, one of them. Let's see here. Let me finish the story. Perkins was also one of the several conservatives who wrote a letter uh, several days before the Friday gathering on, on Abdullah and other organizers to unequivocally denounce specific terrorist acts and plots of recent years, starting with the September 11th attack. Uh, there's no indication from media reports that any of the Muslim speakers at Friday's event did that. Uh, no, they wouldn't do that. But that's okay because Miroslav Volf says that even if Muslims uh, are the, responsible for 9-11, the good news is they pray to the same God we Christians do. <sighs> I can't make this stuff up. I'm just telling you, you can't make this stuff up. Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. Let me take a look at what we've covered so far. When we get back, uh, we've got uh, uh, news from Extreme Prophetic. First of all, an amazing, miraculous jewelry testimony, and then some practical information on how to break uh, witchcraft curses. I mean, I can't wait for this. And then we're going to be uh, reviewing an op-ed piece called Want the Abundant Life. <clears throat> we're going to be in, looking at that in light of law and gospel. We've got a story from Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson is denouncing the therapeutic church model. Um, yeah, well, see that Chuck, it's just a matter of time you're, before you're considered to be a heretic for not follow, following and, and bending the knee to the therapeutic church. And then we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Mark Batterson and, uh, who, who is a purpose driven darling, uh, one of the, uh, 
rock stars of this uh, purpose-driven uh, church planting movement entitled The Pearl of Great Price. So you definitely do not want to miss any of that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Or if you'd like to follow me on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slammed dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We are back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program could, like, completely disrupt your entire life. Yeah, I'm not making it up. It's absolutely true. You've been warned. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. Your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. It, it's, it, think of this as a symbiotic relationship, if you would. We are partners together. Believe it or not, it's absolutely true. And the way you partner with us is by financially supporting us, making it possible for us to pay our bills and continue to produce Fighting for the Faith. We then continue to produce Fighting for the Faith and bring it to you, and then you support us financially. See how this is? So it's one of these big circle of life things. And so the way you can support us, uh, one of the two ways, is uh, you can visit our website, Fighting for the faith.com that's right fighting for the faith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons yeah that's right we have friendly yellow donate buttons there and that uh, will clicking on one of them will redirect you to a page where you can send your uh, contribution and your gift of fighting for the faith in securely right there on the internet or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send it along to post office box 508 fishers indiana Zip code 46038. You know, I, 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 a little bit off topic here. Well, actually, it's kind of in the same vein. Um, we, we're always looking for, uh, you know, people to underwrite or to help us financially for fighting for the faith and for Pir- Pirate Christian Radio. I don't know if you all know this, but I, I talk about it from time to time. By supporting fighting for the faith, you actually support the uh, the entire Pirate Christian Radio uh, web uh, re- re- uh, station itself. Uh, Fighting for the Faith is the financial anchor program for all of Pirate Christian Radio, and so uh, by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you make it possible for us to to uh, continue the work not of just of this program, but the entire mission of Pirate Christian Radio itself. Um, we've been looking for you know creative ways of uh, of getting some uh, some money you know for Fighting for the Faith, and we've just entered into an agreement that allows us to do some some radio advertising for uh, some some, some high-profile companies, uh, but the deal is is that they don't pay us up front. And so instead, it, it's basically, uh, you know, what happens is is that we'll pro- we promote their, their, their services and their company 
Um, but the only way we make money is if you come onto our website and then uh, and then click on you know, click on the link that we provide there and then actually shop or, or purchase the the products and or services that are that are offered. And so you know, it basically it, it's a pay per performance uh, type of advertising scheme, if you would. Hey, we'll take anything. <laughs> At this point, you know, yeah, you know, I, I wish we could say, hey, listen, you know, you advertise, you big companies out there, you know, Pirate Christian Radio, we're the number one Christian talk uh, radio station on the Live 365 network. They say, yeah, that's great. You have a big audience, but, um, you know, times are tough. And uh, and uh, so we'll tell you what, we'll, we'll allow you to advertise our services, but uh, we won't pay you unless somebody uses our services. Uh, so I went, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, in fact, do I have the list here? Uh, what did I do with that? You know, one of the, one of the things I've learned over the years is that I have a very inefficient piling system. Oh, here we go. Here's a so a list of some of the new companies uh, we're going to be doing some radio advertising uh, for. Um, are going to be insurance, the, the auto insurance company insurance. They're they're, they're going to basically do some performance based advertising with us. KitchenSource. dot com, uh, Sentiments, and Total Gym, and also the Men's Warehouse. They they've come on as uh, as uh, an advertiser with us. Again, this is all based on performance. So what will happen is we'll be running some radio spots that'll direct you to a, a website at piratechristianradio. dot com. Where you can click on a link and then go to their uh, website and then uh, and then you know, engage you know, engage in their products and services and the and the company we're using for it is also uh, they're excited about uh, they're trying to get us approved where we can uh, they'll, they'll give us individual phone numbers so rather than you having to click uh, go to the go to a website and clicking on a link instead what'll happen is is that uh, you'll be given phone numbers for each of these different companies that are advertising with us and when you call them. Um, then what will happen is, is that, uh, you know, we'll get a percent, you know, we'll get like a commission or something like that. You know, I'll tell you, it's, it's something, <laughs> it's something we'll take anything right now. And we're also in the process of, uh, redoing our entire t-shirt line, uh, for pirate Christian radio. We'll have more on that shortly. We've changed, we're changing companies. We're moving from, uh, uh, cafe press to something called Zazzle. And uh, Zazzle, let's just put it this way: they've they've it's slightly more expensive products, but better quality, and uh, it allows us to, uh, to to print front and back on dark colored shirts, which is really what we want to be offering is a a line of different uh, T-shirts uh, that you know that support Pirate Christian Radio. That but it's front and back rather than because uh, over at Cafe Press, it, it, they they haven't had the ability to do front and back on dark colored shirts. And so Zazzle is uh, offering that to us, and so we'll, we'll keep you posted. And uh, somebody on Facebook, one of my friends on Facebook, one of the listeners there, uh, said, you know, you got to get uh, like a Rex Quando uh, T-shirt that says bow to your pastor or something like that. We're, we're actually considering that. Well, I'll keep you posted. So anyway, all right. Um, as promised, let's see here. We Oh, man, this is crazy stuff. From time to time here at Fighting for the Faith, we like to um, – well, uh, how do I? It's fractured fairy tales. Whenever we do a, a an update from Patricia King and the Extreme Prophetic Gang, yeah, that's right. Fractured fairy tales. That that's our music for the uh, Extreme Prophetic Gang for Patricia King and folks like that. Boy, they say some of the silliest things. And today will be n- no different. 
Yeah, that's right. Fractured fairy tales. Uh, from the Extreme Prophetic Gang, we've got um, two stories. One regarding prophetic jewelry. Time, there was a very ordinary king. Uh, one regarding prophetic jewelry. And, um, and uh, the other... Well, practical advice on how to break witchcraft curses. We'll do the prophetic jewelry first. Uh, here we go. Hey, I want to share some testimonies or a testimony with you. Yeah, this about is uh, Melissa Fisher from Extreme Prophetic. She's gonna she's gonna share some testimony with us. Uh, catch a load of this. The things that we've been doing on outreach. Well, we do these things called prophetic bracelets, where we take one word that God gives us. And we put it on a bracelet, and then we go out to the streets and see who it's for. Well, I made this bracelet. And I got what? <laughs> you you make prophetic bracelets? You just could question. Where's this in the Bible? It, it, so they they put a word on it, and they, then they go out on the street to see who it's for. So here's a testimony about the name Angela. Well, I actually thought it was going to be for somebody else at another venue, and I didn't. That venue didn't work out, so I was kind of disappointed. Maybe she was doing this between, uh, you know, visits to the different mortuaries because uh, Melissa Fisher, if you remember back a year ago, uh, she was uh, one of the ones talking about uh, these um, mortuary ministries where they were going to raise people from the dead. Apparently, that hasn't worked out for them yet, so they've changed gears and are now doing prophetic jewelry ministry. But I held on to it anyway and took it out with me. And then I was out witnessing, and we were talking to a guy and just having a good time with him. And then a woman walks up. She goes, hi, my name is Angie. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's her. I said, is your real name Angela? She said, yes. And so I started to say, the Lord has a message for you. So I started to give her the prophetic word. And on that bracelet was a little butterfly. So not only was her name Angela, but her nickname was Butterfly, and she had a butterfly tattoo. No way. That's just, wow, that's so radical. Ugh. And Butterfly, to me, represented new life. And she also was pregnant with twins. And so it was this amazing prophetic word that I got to give her. And I tell you what, it just made her weep. And now not only that, she had pain in her knees. So we got to pray for her knees because she was limping a little bit. And she got completely healed and completely rocked by God because she got to see. Unfortunately, the God, the, uh, the God that the folks over the prophetic, extreme prophetic uh, worship and follow is not the God of the Bible. Um, this, it's pretty much the gone of their own delusions, but that's a different story. How a person who lived miles and miles and miles away from her just kind of happened to be downtown while she was there and God was thinking of her and just blessed her with that bracelet and with healing. Isn't that amazing? So, oh, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> well, I encourage you if you like that. By the way, the folks over at Extreme Prophetic are just great storytellers, aren't they? idea latch on to it and do it it's amazing how creative god is and how we can work through just the simplest things so just want to encourage you with that have a great day yeah thanks uh, that was just so great okay next one is uh, is from a gal by the name of angela greenig uh, greenig and uh, boy i tell you this is a scary looking woman but this is some practical information in case you were ever wondering how what it is that you need to do to break witchcraft curses. Well, this is just some practical advice from uh, Angela Greenig. Apparently, she knows a lot about it for some reason. But uh, here we go. Um, okay. 
This is really awesome when I'm getting ready to teach you in a prayer. I really want to be able to help you to understand that, see, this is a prophetic timeline that we're in, and it really has to do with breaking curses from witches, warlocks, generational curses. But God calls... Uh, are there really a whole bunch of witches and warlocks running around out there on the land? I mean... Are they hiding under rocks? Do they have their wands out? And like when I'm driving down the street, are they like shooting curses at me invisibly? You know, like snipers? What are you talking about? Them psychic curses. Because when a witch releases a curse, it's psychic. When a prophet releases a blessing, it's prophetic. So I am going to teach you right now how to break this curse and i want to encourage you it may seem a little silly at first but when god uh, that's kind of an understatement <laughs> um uh, w what chapter of the bible are you going to be reading from as far as these um the this witchcraft curse breaking <sighs> i started downloading this to me maybe 12 or 14 years ago oh okay you got this via download from god i i see <sighs> In other words, we can pretty much just ignore this. And I started to understand it. I prayed it for a while until it became so deep in my spirit that every day I pray this prayer. So let's get into this. Well, so let me see if I have this right, Angela. You've got a prophetic download, download specifically from God uh, 10, 14 years ago, uh, iffy on the details there. And... Um, and now you've got this so deep inside of your heart that you, this is the prayer that you pray every day. Um, I just got, got to ask the, um, the kind of, you know, important question. Didn't Jesus already give us a prayer that we're supposed to pray every day? It's, you know, the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and and break the witchcraft curses that have been cast against us. That wasn't in the Lord's prayer. Um, and this is what I pray in the name of Jesus. I break and renounce every and all curses and spells and incantations that have been spoken over myself, that have been spoken over my Woo. I, I, I think there's flames coming out of her eyeballs. Children, my family, my ministries, my business, in the name of Jesus, I curse. How many, I mean, seriously, is uh, how many people are out there cursing us using witchcraft just curious just um this seems like a pretty intense uh, prayer i mean she's dead serious about it but it doesn't sound anything like the lord's prayer at all and where in the bible are we warned about these witchcraft curses again it seems to me like you're afraid of something that we are not supposed to be afraid of i mean kind of the way i look at it is, is listen i'm a baptized believer of jesus christ you know, in my baptism, I was buried with Christ. I was raised with Christ. My heart was circumcised by Christ. Um, you know, my sins were washed away. I, I, you know, it, because of, of what Christ has done in giving me faith, washing away my sins, dying on the cross for me, I've been adopted into the family of God. And uh, that being the case, I mean, the way I look at it is, is Satan and witches, are there really that many of them? Um, uh, um, I don't need to worry about whatever it is that they're doing, it just doesn't matter because Christ has already defeated them by his death on the cross. I mean, call me just a simpleton, if you would, but I just, like a kid, I kind of trust in that, and I don't have to, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about witchcraft curses. 
just not something I spend a lot of time worrying. In fact, I haven't lost any sleep uh, about witchcraft curses in 41 years. Um, Every word, and I command you! <laughs> Yikes, man, my hair got blown back. To dry up and die. You will not take root in my ground that God has given me. And in the fire... Uh, by the way... Uh, Sounds like you're praying about yourself there, Angela. And in the power and in the name of Jesus. You know what's funny is this, her hairdo, she looks like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Just, you know, saying, you know, those of you old enough to remember that know what I'm talking about. Lord, right now, we release the blessing over every curse that has been spoken over us. I mean, seriously, how many, I mean, are there, are there just a bunch of uh, witches running around cursing the folks over there at Extreme Prophetic? Again, I just don't see this as any kind of a big threat. From the third to the fourth generation back, Lord, we release, we release today. I really hear the spirit. Whoa. Ha, <laughs> yeah. Um, any translation there on that mindless babbling that you had there for us, Angela? Man, this is an intense prayer. I am speaking right now to those of you that are out there that are dabbling in witchcraft. God wants you to know that you have no idea. At first, it's a lie. It'll seduce. It'll come in and you'll start. You know what's ironic about this is that the folks over there at Extreme Prophetic, I, I think they actually do dabble in witchcraft. That's kind of the irony here. To get power. But if you are not careful, the enemy will literally have you in such bondage that you will not be able to get out. Um yeah, kind of like the bondage of the extreme prophetic gang, right? And all their bizarre, bizarre, non-biblical, non-Christian ideas about baking their brain in the glory of God, that kind of stuff. Unless you get the proper help. And I just want you to know that you can pray this prayer and say, Lord Jesus. Really? Um, where did this? Oh, that's right. She got this prayer from a download from God. So she basically is, uh, she is getting direct revelation from God that now you can take this um, prayer and, um, and apply it to your life. Because apparently, you know, because it, it comes from God himself. <coughs> Hang on a second. Well, it doesn't, but she thinks it does. I repent right now of my sins. Lord Jesus, I ask right now that I, I curse all the lies that I've been dabbling and I curse all the witchcraft. Are we called the curse? Yeah, my mom always told me the cursing was wrong. Maybe she meant something different. Because I tried to be something that I wasn't. And Holy Spirit, I asked that the fire and the baptism again of your fire, of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, would ignite a generation, Lord God, that would ignite a generation of dread champions to arise. God says we are entering into... Good night. This doesn't sound like a Christian prayer at all. What is this? Our finest hour. And he needs his sons and his daughters to get back into the positions, to the places of oh, authority yeah. that he has put you in. Oh, yeah, that's right. God's sitting up there. He's completely powerless unless you make better decisions. I got it. And, Father, we released a blessing in Jesus' name. We got to do the releasing. <sighs> These people just suffer from complete spiritual delusions of grandeur. I don't think they even know what they're talking about. Men. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. 
tell you, that, that's a, I don't know what that was, but it'll burn your face off if you watch the video. I had to wear, put sunscreen on before I uh, queued that video up. All right, real quick here. Uh, Chuck Colson denounces therapeutic church model. I'm going to talk about this on this side of the break, and then when we, back, uh, when we get back from the second break, I'm going to talk about uh, Want the Abundant Life. Uh, apparently, we're going to do a little law and gospel here with an op-ed piece from the Christian Post written by Gladys... Uh, Fama Royo, and um, she's a post uh, guest columnist there. She's an award-winning author and speaker and coach, and the author of a co- of Overcoming Emotional Baggage. And uh, she has an op-ed piece called "Want the Abundant Life?" <clears throat> Question mark. Yeah, well, uh, apparently all Americans do, but uh, they don't seem to understand what it is biblically. Chuck Colson, uh, as uh, Nathan Black of the Christian Post is uh, reporting, that Chuck Colson is denouncing the therapeutic church model. Uh, the church has fallen into a therapeutic model, says one prominent evangelical. In an interview with Time magazine, Chuck Colson denounced the feel-good kind of Christianity he sees being promoted in churches. Quote, it believes its job is to make people happy and take care of their problems. Yeah, it's called preaching to felt needs. I don't think this is going to win you any brownie points with um, Rick Warren by you attacking uh, his therapeutic gospel. Or Bill Hybels, for that matter, said Colson, also author of the uh, also the author of uh, the faith, what Christians believe, why they believe it, and why it matters. But the church's job, uh, Colson noted, is to make people holy. Okay, now with you, you got to be careful if you're going to talk that way. It, it, the church, the, the 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 job of the church is to make people holy. Boy, that can make it sound like it's my job to make myself holy rather than to proclaim the holiness, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us as a gift by Christ. The, ch- the job of the church is to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's, you know, the, um, so make people holy. Well, yes, in a way. But if you define that wrong as you are the one doing it. Uh, I would have to disagree with Colson. Um, the well-known evangelical and uh, former aide to President Richard Nixon launched the Chuck Colson Center this month he, to provide resources that would help train people in a biblical worldview. His aim is to help Christians live in obedience to and uh, for the honor of Jesus Christ in every area of their lives and to help them transform their communities through biblical truth. Okay, sounds well-meaning, but I'm a little worried there that this might be pietistic um, legalism here. Um, Anyway, after more than 30 years of working with inmates through prison fellowship, uh, Colson told Time that many of the prisoners were products of a failed worldview uh, that modernity would make everything better. Um, Wouldn't they be like uh, products of, you know, sinful humanity? You know, by nature, we're all sinners at war with God, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I just don't think that blaming it on a failed worldview of, of the failed worldview of modernity really kind of gets to the depth of the problem there. Ironically, um, his bla- by blaming it on uh, on a failed worldview, is he really proclaiming a Christian worldview? Isn't the Christian worldview that we're all sinners and that uh, that Christians are to be heralds and uh, of 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 the biblical gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? You know, just asking. Uh, the frontal assault over the last several years has provo- uh, proven inadequate, Colson said. What we must do now is be salt and light, rubbed into the culture, so to speak, in such a way that the people and institutions around us slowly begin to understand that they have embraced the lie. Our job is to expose the lie and replace it with the truth of a biblical understanding of all reality. 
Okay. Um, gosh, it sounds like I'm you know, just wondering if this is a mix-up of the two kingdoms, too. His article addressing cultural questions and tackling current news and trends from a Christian perspective have been made available on his new uh, Colson Center website. He hopes that the center will be the capstone of his career and maybe his greatest legacy. Colson became a born-again Christian before pleading guilty to Watergate-related charges after serving seven months in Alabama's Maxwell Prison in 1974. He founded Prison Fellowship Ministries and wrote 20 books, which have collectively sold more than 5 million copies. So there you have it. Um, He's denouncing the therapeutic church model. And I think he's right in denouncing the therapeutic church model. But see, the thing is, is that the therapeutic church model is at the heart and center and core of the purpose-driven, seeker-driven uh, you know, uh, church growth models. You preach to people's felt needs, and it basically it's all about drawing a crowd and, and meeting their felt needs And before you, you hit them with the gospel. The problem is, is that the gospel they're proclaiming is, is decision evangelism at best, and uh, Jesus wants you to, you know, to have the best for your life, uh, you, that kind of uh, gospel at, at worst. And when you think about it, that, you know, yeah, Christ wants you to have a better life, but it may not be here. It may actually be an eternity. Uh, just think of all of our brothers and sisters who are dying for their for their faith across the world. All right, we're up on our uh, second break. We're, when we come back, we're going to answer the question, want the abundant life? We're going to be looking at this uh, article just for a little, in brief, in view of, in light of law and gospel, understanding this, that the, uh, the purpose of God's law, according to the Bible, is to convict us of our sin, show us our sin, and to show us our need for a Savior. And the purpose, uh, the, uh, the purpose of the gospel is to, is to offer us the comfort and forgiveness won by Christ on the cross. So law is to condemn us, gospel is to... Uh, is to proclaim what Christ has done for us, and uh, the two you should not mix together. It's it's really a bad combination. So uh, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, listen, I read all of my emails, but I do not even come close to having the ability to respond to them all. But uh, please feel free to email me. I do really appreciate the feedback. Uh, you can uh, email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. Uh, my name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Get a real quick article I want to take a look at and see if you can find the problems here. From the Christian Post, want the abundant life? We're going to view this in light of law and gospel and do the same then on our sermon review today. Mark Batterson has a church there in um, the Washington, D.C. area and is one of the darlings of the purpose-driven, seeker-driven movement. And he's done a sermon called The Pearl of Great Price. We're going to look at that in light of law and gospel today. So you definitely do not want to miss our sermon review. And with that, we'll talk about uh, this uh, guest columnist, uh, Gladys uh, Famario, uh, who is uh, asked the question, Want the abundant life? Here's what she says. Many of us are in search of the abundant life the Bible promises in John 10.10. Uh, yeah, you know, just right off the bat, um, you know, um, Ms. Famario or Gladys, um, we've got a problem, okay? Uh, John 10.10, 10, you're just taking it out of context. Um, yeah, the question I have is, do you think that the Apostle Paul had the abundant life? This is a guy who was beaten, who was stoned until he nearly died. He's uh, He was shipwrecked. He was at sea. Uh, you know, uh, he was driven out of towns. I mean, this guy had all kinds of problems. Do you think he had the abundant life? Um, the answer, I would answer that, yeah, absolutely, he had the abundant life. And the reason why is because the abundant life isn't about how successful you are at uh, achieving the suburbanite, uh, the American suburbanite dream, if you would. That's the problem is, is you see abundant life when in America and people think, oh, yeah, the abundant life means me having a, a 4,500-square-foot house in the burbs uh, driving a, uh, you know, basically a medium to high-end uh, luxury vehicle, having well-behaved children, a, a healthy and satisfying sex life. See, that's how people define the abundant life. But see, if you if you're defining the abundant life uh, in such a way, then you're not actually looking at what it means biblically. Uh, but we continue. Many of us are in search of the abundant life the Bible promises us, us in John ten ten, specifically in the areas of our finances. Oh, boy. Yet our present realities seem a far cry from this, and when you add the current economic climate of the uh, to the equation, things can start looking daunting. Oh, no. God can't provide me with the abundant life in my finances because the, uh, the economy's taken a bad... You, you know what? You've completely framed this question completely wrong. <clears throat> we continue. However, let's remind ourselves of some basic biblical facts. I believe it's God's desire for us to prosper in all areas of our lives... 
And the Bible is littered with many scriptures to support this. Really, did you, are you aware, um, Gladys, that uh, the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down, that all but one of the apostles died martyrs? Are you familiar with that? And so how can you basically, oh, 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 that's right. She says, I believe it's God's desire for us to prosper in all areas of our lives. From my experience, <clears throat> not the Bible, I, I believe a number of our issues stem from in, an incorrect mindset and behavior. So here are some common areas to keep us from, uh, that keep us from attaining what is rightfully ours. Let me read that sentence again. So here are some common areas that keep us from attaining what is rightfully ours. In other words, basically, prosperity is rightfully yours. This is a complete heresy. <clears throat> Problem number one, focusing on the present situation. Often here, many blame a slow economy, high interest rates, and other external factors to justify their predicaments. However, my question is, since when did taking possession of our promises depend on the physical earthly factors? Oh, boy. If you cast your mind back on the times of the Bible, God often demonstrated his power in times that often confounded the human mind. Example, miracles in the desert, making provision in times of famine. So I ask again, what has your present situation got to do with God's ability to meet your financial needs? As Christians, we need to remember that the God we serve is not limited to our economic climate. Too often, we fail to see beyond the Red Sea because of our focus on the Egyptians pursuing us. Oh, boy, allegory. Okay, however, when we begin to shift our focus, we can start to align ourselves with God's plans and his capabilities uh, to part the Red Sea of our lives. Oh, boy, just, this is reprehensible. Why is the Christian Post publishing this woman who is obviously oh-so-not-Christian in her views? How about self-defeating attitudes and beliefs and behaviors? Another common culprit that hinders us from fully experiencing God's abundance, this is all law, it's all on you, by the way, is adopting self-defeating attitudes, beliefs, and habits towards money. Some believe Christians ought to be poor and or not strive to prosper, and some believe in spending without caution or planning for the future and so on. But the truth is that many of these, if not all, are not biblical or sound or are based on their misunderstandings of scriptures. So if you continue to embrace such notions, living the life may elude you. Therefore, it pays to be aware of your attitudes and beliefs towards money, good or bad, as it has a direct impact on the actions you take. <sighs> Limitations of the mind. Thinking too small and or embracing a poverty mentality are other challenges Christians face. Really, embracing a poverty mentality. Where is this in the Bible? You know, I'm just going to cut to the quick here. This is going to, I'm going to blow up if I continue reading this. In closing, I encourage everyone to reflect on the above. There are, are there attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors you need to address? If so, ask God to help you to remove, renew your mind and align it to His Word. Ask Him to make you wiser so you can start to make smarter decisions to help you along. Why not spend time meditating on scripture that relate to God's provision and blessing? This is all stuff you got to do, and by the way, nowhere in Scripture do we have any of the apostles uh, preaching the prosperity heresy, and this, uh, I, again, what does this do? It lays it all on you. Are you struggling financially? Well, it's your fault, and the reason why it's your fault is because you just don't have the right attitude and or you have behaviors in your life that are limiting God from giving, you know, from providing you with the thing that is rightfully yours. And you have notice anything wrong with that sentence? Anything wrong with that way of thinking? Uh, basically, uh, whether or not you have the ability to financially survive is based upon you and your obedience. Basically, God is a big, basically a big bank in the sky, and see, He's ready to write the big check, but He's just waiting on you, waiting for you to have the right attitude.
and waiting for you to get those behaviors in check. You see, the problem, though, is, is that sin um, is not about bad attitudes. It's it, you're, You sin because you're a sinner by nature. And uh, if uh, getting your sinful behavior in check is the thing that is necessary before God will, quote, bless you, um, then we've got a problem, and that is is that you are such a rotten and wretched sinner, um, and that once you've committed one sin, if you've broken any, if you've broken just one of the commandments, you are guilty of breaking them, well, all. Uh, that being the case, uh, you'll never get to that point in your life where you'll be a good enough or have the right enough attitude or, or have the right correct behaviors necessary to warrant God giving you the promise of his blessing. Notice the strange language there, promise of his blessing. If somebody promises you something, is it based upon your um, attitudes or behaviors? Or is it just based upon the one promising? See the problem there? You, you, again, you see... The prosperity heresy is nothing more than just a uh, legalistic reward system and a bad one at that. All right. We are up for our uh, sermon review today. That's right. Sermon review time here. Fighting for the faith, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all. Got an email from Chick uh, the other day. She was saying that uh, she heard this uh, music outside of the context of the radio program, and like Pavlov's dog, she thought it was time for a sermon review. I apologize that I may have ruined uh, the good, the bad, the ugly for all of you now uh, who are regular listeners to Fighting for the Faith. And when you hear this song, you'll immediately think it's sermon review time. <laughs> I wish I was making that up. Yeah, I'm not. All right. Today's sermon is entitled The Pearl of Great Price. It's by Mark Batterson. I think National City Church is his church. Uh, He's a purpose-driven seeker guy and uh, darling of the purpose-driven movement. Probably one of the smarter guys in the purpose-driven movement. Uh, But I also think he's a closet pietist, but that's a different story. Um, Now, as we get ready to dive into this sermon review, something to keep in mind. Law and gospel is always going to be the thing that we've got to listen for. The purpose of the law, preaching the law lawfully, is to convict people of their sins and to show Christians what a good work is. Okay? If you are not preaching the law in that way and somehow watering it down and giving steps on the things you need to do in order to... um, attain it, so to speak, or or similar to what we heard from Gladys, basically saying it's up to you to get rid of your bad attitudes and uh, and try harder and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, Yeah, that's a reference to Baron Munchausen, for those of you who are aware of Baron Munchausen. Kind of a... um, a uh, German folklore hero. He he was he was he had ridden his horse into a quagmire, and the way he got himself out was he. Uh, there's two versions of the story. One, he pulled himself out by his ponytail, and or uh, pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. Yeah, I don't know why I told you that. It just was on my mind. Anyway, kill the music, will you? Thank you. All right, so without any further ado, here is a National Community Church. This is um, Mark Battison. The name of the sermon is The Pearl of Great Price. Well, welcome to everyone at all five of our locations. And I want to. By the way, he's a big multi site guy. 
Uh, you know, that's right. They've got one major congregation, and then they record the sermons, they videotape it, and then yeah, cart it off to other venues and then play the uh, the video there. Give a little shout-out this weekend to our podcast listeners and webcast watchers. I got a cool email this week from someone who is in China and doesn't have immediate access to a church there but listens to our podcast. And, man, I love National Community Church for lots of reasons. And I know you're thinking, well, you're the pastor, but... Trust me, not every pastor loves the church they pastor. Should I have said that? Um, uh, but I love so many things about National Community Church. But I think one of the things that, that is so cool about what the Lord's doing is that we have this amazing immediate family and we gather together every weekend at our five locations. But then we have this cool extended family all around the world. And, and some of it is just due to the fact that because of our demography and geography, we, we have people who come to NCC, uh, interns that maybe were here this summer or, or students that are here. And, you know, they're here for a while, but then we send them out. And there are so many NCCers uh, in places all over the place, and, and we view them as our extended family. So um, one way or the other, welcome, and if it's your first time, uh, absolutely thrilled that you would be here and spend this weekend with us. We're going to continue our series, figuratively speaking, talking about the parables of Jesus, and if you have a Bible, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 44. We're going to talk about the pearl of great Price. We'll get there in a few moments. Uh, on a January morning in 2007, L'Enfant Metro Station was filled with music. At exactly 7.51 a.m. during the morning rush hour, an ordinary-looking man dressed in jeans wearing a baseball cap took out a $3.5 million Stradivarius and started playing. Oh, boy. We've heard this sermon illustration before. Okay. All right. By the way, why are we starting with the sermon illustration rather than the passage? The passage, one verse, um, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, this, uh, this, funny enough, this particular parable kind of falls in a series of different parables regarding the kingdom of God. Um, let, let, me, let me read some of these. So remember, our three most important rules for properly interpreting and understanding the Bible are context, context, and context. And it's important for us to be able to properly interpret parables because they are stories that have a Christ-centered point to them. So the question is, where's the gospel in all of it? And, uh, you know, Christ crucified for our sins. It's our great God and Savior who's the one who rescues us. And a bad way to preach the pearl of great price is, have you sold everything so that you can gain uh, the uh, the kingdom of heaven? If that's your punchline to the pearl of great price, you're preaching only law. You're not preaching the gospel. In fact, that's not the correct interpretation of that passage at all, um, because that makes salvation uh, up to you. Uh, but we read, I'm going to start in verse 24. Let's get a couple of these in, and I'm going to keep reading for a little bit. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, 
His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, uh, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the, the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and then bind them in the bundles to be burned. A little allusion to hell there. Uh, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it is larger than all plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests on its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, is like leaven that a woman took and hidden in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Um, that's an interesting one because uh, three measures of flour is huge. Get this picture of this ginormous woman kneading this huge... Uh, Amount of uh, leaven. And it, uh, and then all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fill, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And I think it's Isaiah here. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let me get the cross reference on that. Um, let's see. Uh, Matthew 35. Uh, Psalm, uh, oh, okay. That's from Psalm 78. Not from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah has, uh, in Isaiah we hear that they may be ever hearing but never perceiving, ever seeing but never understanding, that kind of stuff. All right, so then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, Well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the end of the age. Apparently, this is not good news for everybody. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Tony Jones, you're wrong. Anyway, I'm a different track here. Uh, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, uh, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of his teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said, to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. All right, so we're looking at the parable of the pearl of great price. Kingdom of is like a treasure. Or the, so the verses 34, 30, uh, 44, 45, and 46. Now, you were preaching it wrong when it basically comes down to if you want the kingdom of heaven, then you've got to give up everything in order to get it. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. That's that's legalistic preaching. 
Okay. Now, uh, one way to interpret this through the gospel is to basically flip it on its head and do it this way. Who's the one that sold all that he had in order to redeem and purchase? That would be Christ. Jesus Christ bought the farm, so to speak, if you know what I mean. And he gave and sold. He gave basically gave all he had. And by doing so, he redeemed us from slavery to sin and the devil. Right. In other words, we're the great treasure and Christ is the one who is the one giving everything he has in order to save us. That's I think that's a that's a more gospel way of looking at this. Kingdom of Heaven is like a merchant in, in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you see what I'm saying? So um now in a similar way, though there is a way in which you can apply it to us, uh you think about it this way is is that in becoming a Christian, you do give up all that you have because you repent, you change your mind, you're given faith. And this thing that doesn't seem like it's very valuable, I mean, it's ridiculously valuable. And there's some kind of, there's some really cool gospel joy in the kingdom of heaven that other people do not value. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, too. So we got to be careful in how we interpret this so that it doesn't come down to, have you sold everything that you have so that you can gain the pearl of great price? Well, then, well if that's the case, then no, then I, apparently I don't own it. I don't have it. So you got to be careful. That being said, let's uh, listen to how Batterson is uh, going to uh, interpret the Pearl of Great Price for us. And already, you know, we're talking about this uh, this uh, world famous violin player in a three point five million dollar Stradivarius, uh, basically playing at a train depot. We continue. His name is Joshua Bell. It's one of the finest violinists in the world. Regularly performs the sold-out crowds, best concert halls, standing ovations. Of course, the commuters had no idea who he was. It was part of an undercover field study conducted by the Washington Post. Well, Bell played a Bach sonata. It's one of the most challenging pieces ever composed for the violin. And for 43 minutes, those commuters were treated to a free world-class concert. But on that January morning, there was no applause, no cameras flashing. Honestly, no one really seemed to care of the 1,097 people who walked by. Hardly anybody even stopped for a moment. One man listened for a few minutes. A couple of kids stared at him. And one woman who recognized the famous violinist, gaped in disbelief. The D.C. commuters, and I bet there were a few NCCers going through L'Enfant Metro Station that morning, didn't pay attention because of something that psychologists call value attribution. Without a stage, without formal attire, without an expensive ticket, Wearing a baseball cap and jeans in a subway station. Joshua Bell just seemed to be your average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill street musician. Maybe playing for some spare change. You see, we have a tendency to value people and value things on, on our perceptions of them instead of the objective data. Um, this parable 
that we look at this weekend is all about value attribution. Is it possible that there is something of infinite worth, of such value, that we can't even estimate it? Is it possible... I'll, I'll answer the question, yeah, but I don't think it's what you what you think it is. The answer to the question is is that what what do we say that uh, but God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins, and so we we talk about inestimable worth. Um, the the thing is is that Christ is the one who paid the ultimate price for us. By dying on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God and to make peace for, with make peace with God for us, um, unilaterally. So I mean, when we if you're going to talk about something that has inestimable value, the thing is, is that Christ is the one who paid this huge inestimable price. Christ, God pays for the church with His own blood. So that being the case, for whatever reason, I have to say biblically, yeah. Uh, the church is of such inestimable value that it's priceless to the point that it was purchased and bought with the blood, very blood of Christ. I wonder if that's where he's going to go with this. In fact, that all of us underestimate it in an infinite kind of way. Is it possible that the kingdom of God and the relationship that we have of Christ is possibly of a little more value than what we have appraised it for. And is it possible that because of that, maybe we aren't living our lives in the way that we could or should? Okay, so this is all upon... Here's the deal. Yeah, you're right. You actually have a point, okay? Um, however, I don't think if, I, if God were to reveal to me just how important... And of what inestimable worth the quote kingdom of God is, that that would mean that I would stop sinning, because I sin because I'm a sinner by nature. I do good works because I am a new creation in Christ by nature. Um, so you know, as a Christian, I'm simul justus et peccator. I am not saved by my good works at all. And uh, in in fact, I do good works because I'm a new creation in Christ. How could I not do them? I mean, it's like breathing. You know, I mean, who ever heard of a, an alive person that wasn't breathing? Good works are the breath of faith. But we continue. Parables are interesting because Jesus had the ability to force us to ask questions. He didn't give easy answers. And I'm not here this weekend to give one of those easy one, two, three application messages where do these three things and you're good to go. Uh, this is a little bit more challenging than that. What I want to try to do this weekend is, can we look at the way we value our relationship with Christ? But even beyond that, can we look at the way that we value anything and everything and maybe do a little reappraisal? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now we're actually covering two parables. Don't you feel like you're accomplishing so much 
this weekend. But these It's only three verses, Mark. Don't get too excited. <laughs> two of the shortest parables. And and they're they're together for a reason. Uh verse forty five. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus used metaphors and similes to try to describe in physical terms those spiritual truths that are very difficult for us to comprehend. And in this particular parable, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, or it's like a pearl of great price. Now, it's interesting because I think this parable uh, didn't just come out of thin air. You know, uh, there's a reason, for example, why most of the parables are agrarian in nature. It's because Jesus lived in an agricultural society, and so he used those metaphors to speak spiritual truth. And, and so this parable is actually rooted in some reality. It wasn't uncommon in ancient times to bury treasure. Now, for a variety of reasons. First of all, there, there weren't security deposit boxes. Like, there, you know, there wasn't a place to go um, to put that thing on deposit. Um, there's actually a rabbinic saying it says the only one safe repository for money is the earth. And so it's kind of interesting because it sheds a, a unique light on some of these parables that we've talked about this year, including the, the servant who hid his talent in the ground. And, and then this one, um, before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jewish historian Josephus talked about how uh, many Jewish people, as Rome was invading, that they, 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 they hid their treasures in the ground because they hoped that maybe someday um, uh, uh, those captives would be set free. They'd be able to come back and then dig up that buried treasure. And so what I'm saying is, is there's some reality to this. And it's so easy to hear a story like this. And if it's, if it's real abstract, I don't think we get the true heart of this. But But hidden treasure, like... Is there anybody in the world that doesn't love a good movie or a good book or a good story about hidden treasure and specifically us finding it? You know, there's just something about it that we, we, this idea that, oh, if we could find something of, of great value, it would be just so, so amazing. Um, so let's try to make this concrete. When I was a kid, um, I had an uncle that had a metal detector. And that automatically made this uncle incredibly cool. And I remember I was probably eight years old and we would go on vacation, Bedman's Beach, Lake Ida, Alexandria, Minnesota. And I remember at different points during the week, I loved it when my uncle would bring out his metal detector and he would scan the beach. And, you know, uh, you know, part of me is thinking, well, we've done this 10 years in a row. There's probably not going to, you know, we're not going to find anything really of great value. But, but it was super exciting. And, and I remember he would come to me in and bottle caps. You would think that, that, you know, they would have this tremendous value because it was so exciting. Every once in a while, we'd find like a nickel or a quarter. And, and it was just 
oh, it was so exciting. Like, could there be something under the surface of the sand, some hidden treasure? Uh, There's something about buried treasure that never loses its storybook charm. Uh, A few years ago, Parker and Summer were a little bit younger. Uh, I remember, in fact, where we picked up the book, we were on vacation at Rehoboth Beach, and and there was this book um, on pirates. And and so one night I'm reading this book to my kids and it's about Captain Kidd who was captured and executed by the English, but not before he buried his treasure as pirates did. And legend has it that his treasure uh, may have been buried on Oak Island off the coast of Canada in 1795. A hundred years after Kidd died, a young boy found a 150-foot shaft that became known as the Money Pit of Oak Island. So I'm reading the book to the kids about Captain Kidd and, you know, and this, and, and like, I'm reading and it's becoming more than a story. Like, and, and so... Um, Over the last few centuries, it talked about how treasure seekers and divers have lost their lives trying to uncover the treasure because the shaft was booby-trapped, like the the pirates had booby-trapped it. And and then the last sentence of the book, I kid you not, this is the last sentence of the book, for all we know, it may still be there today. (laughs) I wanted to tuck my kids into bed, pack my suitcase, and head off to Oak Island because give me some hidden treasure like it just it's this universal appeal it's so and what i'm trying to say is like try to bottle those emotions maybe maybe concentrate them intensify them and what jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven well how how do you get into the kingdom of heaven through a relationship with jesus christ he's the way the truth and the life um he is the door he's the gate and it's through a relationship with christ okay now i gotta i gotta take issue with this okay i've heard this said over and over and over again now the way you get into heaven is through a relationship with jesus christ we got a problem okay i have relationships with a lot of different people okay i I got a lot of different kinds of relationships For, for instance i have a relationship with my wife it's a very intimate relationship i have a relationship with my children my son my daughters i have in, i have relationships with them i have a relationship with with people i've worked with friends of mine um so i have all kinds of different relationships to say that the way you get into heaven is through a relationship with jesus christ tells me nothing i i, I and i i am going to challenge every time i hear this the, these words i'm going to challenge them because, listen, biblically, the relationship we're called to with God is the relationship of father and child. Okay? Now, here's the deal. I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again using the same metaphor, if you will. No matter, It doesn't matter if I go out and I purchase every single book written by Donald Trump and study my brains out and listen to, find every way of, of, of getting a hold of every lecture that he's ever done, every television show he's ever done, and basically become the quintessential connoisseur of all things Trump. Okay? Um, it does, if, if I were to do that, that would not make me a son of Donald Trump, nor would I be in line to inherit, uh, whatever inheritance he's going to pass on to his children when they died, when he died. Okay. 
Um, see, that's the thing. Yes, we're called to have a relationship with God. We're called to have a relationship with Christ. But it's a family relationship. In other words, you have to be adopted into the family of God. That comes about only through the work of Christ. Only Christ is the one who can decide to let you into the kingdom, so to speak. And uh, that, see, that's all accomplished by what Christ has done for us on the cross. The clarion call of the gospel is not come have a, a quote, relationship with Jesus, whatever that means. It's It's repent and believe the good news that Christ has died for your sins. Through that repentance and through the faith that God gives us through the preaching of the gospel, we are purchased, we're redeemed. Uh, through baptisms, uh, our sins are washed away, we're buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ. And what happens is, is that we are adopted as children of God. So to say that, yeah, we have to have a relationship with God tells me nothing. Okay, uh, because there's people going to be out there. Well, okay, I'm going to have an erotic, mystical relationship with God. I'm going to have, a, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a friend relationship with Jesus. That's not the kind of uh, relationship we're called to. It's a relationship as adopted children, and God has to be the one to initiate that, not us. Christ, that we come into the kingdom of heaven. He said, "This kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field." Oh, isn't that exciting? Doesn't that kind of get your adrenaline going a little bit? See, I think we hear this story, and if it, if it stays abstract, like it just doesn't do anything for us. But what I'm saying is tremendous value. And, and that's what you see in the story. Now, in the first incident, it almost seems like finding the treasure is accidental. There isn't as intentional a seeking for it. Now, in the second the second instance, there is, there's intentionality. You've got a, someone who is searching, looking for a pearl of great price. Um, and it's so interesting to me because we all enter the kingdom of heaven in very different ways. And that's a testament to the, the omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence of God who can meet any of us in any way. And I just, it's amazing because, you know, and, and it's exciting to me because this weekend I'm thinking, oh, some of you are here and you think you're here accidentally. Like, what am I doing here? Like, you know what? You, you might find something that could change your life. And, and others of you, you've been coming for a while because like this, this merchant who was looking for the pearl of great price, you're kind of seeking and uh, I, there's something that's missing. I need to find that thing. But, but one way or the other, he, here's the cool thing, by the way. It's really not about you seeking God. It's about the fact that God is seeking you. Okay, good point. All right, excellent, excellent, excellent point. And he's right. God is the one who's seeking us. All right, we, well, there's some hope here. Maybe this will turn out well. All you really have to do is turn around, and he's right there. All I have to do? Um, if somebody's dead in their trespasses and sins, how are they going to turn around? Um, when you go to the cemetery, uh, do you tell people, listen, if you could just, if you would just turn around, then you, you, you would see that you're alive and, you know, just stick your hand out of that, uh, that casket and uh, God will do the rest. Maybe this isn't going to turn out so good. God, God has been seeking you. I was going to say since the day you were born, but the Bible says that before God formed you in the womb, he knew you. The day you were conceived, from before the day you were conceived, you were conceived in the mind of God. He knew you, been seeking you. He'll seek you until the day you die because it's the nature of God. He wants a relationship with you. 
And, and by the way, that's the pearl of great price. And, and if we just simply turn around, we find that waiting for us. And so the kingdom of heaven is treasure, like a treasure hidden in the field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and what? Sold all he had and bought that field. And in the second parable went away and sold everything he had and bought it. That's all inclusive language. Sold everything, sold all he had. Let me again try to put some context to this parable. You have to understand a little bit about the Jewish mindset and the Jewish culture because that's who Jesus is speaking to. And I find this fascinating. Jewish rabbis were afraid that those who were wealthy and generous would give too much and end up impoverished. So they decree that no one should give more than 33%. That kind of interesting? Uh, 33% was the standard. It was the benchmark. In a sense, in that Jewish mindset, giving up 33% was giving up everything. And it's almost like Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. We're about to set a new standard here. And how many times does Jesus do this? I mean, Peter, like, you know, is patting himself on the back while he's saying, oh, should I forgive 70 times seven? You know, he's feeling so spiritual. And, and you know, or no, he says seven times. And then Jesus comes back and says, try 70 times seven. It's this paradigm shift. It's like, oh, man, Peter, you think, you think you're way up here and you're way down here. Not even close. And so Jesus sets a new standard. He, he's sell everything. Give everything. It's this 100% standard. Now, okay, if that, okay, if that's the case, if we're talking about a 100% standard, selling everything, then uh, we don't get the kingdom unless we sell everything. If this is about us and what we have to do to get the kingdom of heaven, um, then this is salvation by works. And you don't get the kingdom until you give up everything. Now, funny enough, the scriptures do describe one who did give up everything. Be careful. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, he purchased with his own blood. The scriptures, the gospel tells us that Jesus is the one who gave up everything to purchase the church. We continue. When you read this parable, uh, is there a story in the gospel that kind of comes to mind, an actual real true story? Um, for me, I can't read these parables. Oh, is it going to be the rich young ruler? I'm just taking a stab here. Parables without thinking about the rich young ruler. Uh, am I a prophet or what? Oh, man. Oh, boy. By the way, the story of the rich young ruler is not Jesus telling the rich young ruler what he has to do to obtain life. Go and sell everything. 
The story of the rich young ruler is one where the rich young ruler thought he was keeping the law when he wasn't, and Jesus preached the law to him to expose his sinfulness. Because what you have there is a fleshed out version of this story. And no, you don't. You don't at all, because the story of the rich young ruler is not about the things that he had to do to inherit life. Salvation is a free gift from God by what Christ has done. If that's if that's how you look at the rich story of the rich young ruler, then you believe in salvation by works, not by grace. You believe in salvation as a wage instead of a gift. And yet, Scripture couldn't be more clear that salvation is 100% gift and so here's here it is in the in a nutshell um this rich young ruler comes to jesus and 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 you know they have this conversation by the way ask a profound question what am i still lacking what makes that fascinating is that here's a guy that on paper from our vantage point has everything you know you don't have to be a bible guy. you don't have to go to seminary to figure out this guy was rich young and a ruler Amazing. Like, um, so he was wealthy, he had power, and he had his whole life in front of him. Like, you know, you're thinking to yourself, this guy has everything we want. Like, if I had what that guy had, I'd be good to go. He says, what am I still lacking? Something's still missing. And, and Jesus, I, I love this because... His answers rarely like directly answer the question that's asked because usually Jesus knows that they should ask a different question. So I'm just going to answer the one that you should ask in the first place, you know. Um, so it doesn't. It's almost like there's this disconnect. Like, what am I still lacking? And, and like, what does Jesus say is about to say have to do with that? But man, it, I think he nails it. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Now I can't, I can't miss this point. I, I, um, I'm going to get off on some rabbit trails, but stick with me. Got to stop there for a second. We're going to read this in context. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 18. A ruler asked Jesus, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" Listen to the question. What must I do to inherit? eternal life. Really bad question, by the way. It's all law. There's no gospel. And scripture is clear. We are saved by grace through faith alone, by what Christ has done alone. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. That's what the Bible teaches beyond a shadow of a doubt. No mixing. No, no, there is no mixing of works and grace. It is purely by God's grace. The rich young ruler comes to him and he's asking a legalistic question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's interesting, right? Inheritance is not something you earn. It's something that's given to you. And he's asking what he needs to do to earn his inheritance. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. To which we would all say, right, yeah, right. I don't believe it for a second. He's completely deluded with self-righteousness. 
all right. He said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus said, I heard this. All right. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Uh, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. What is it that the rich young ruler was guilty of? Idolatry. He had put his wealth above God and was worshiping, fearing and loving and trusting in his wealth above God. And this is, you know, so Christ gives him the law. This was not Jesus saying, okay, well, okay, you're, you're, you're doing so good. Wow. From your youth, you've never stolen. You've never lied. You've always, always honored your father and mother. Oh, what a good little Jewish boy you are. Just one more thing, just one more thing. And then you can be cut and then you can get in. That was not the point Jesus was making. I, I fear Batterson is uh, missing the proper distinction of law and gospel. Uh, isn't it interesting that uh, this idea that, that treasure would be buried in the earth, and Jesus takes this concept and flips it on its head. If you read Matthew 6, remember what he said? He said, don't, don't store up treasure on earth or under the earth. You know, because they're moss and rust and, and it'll get destroyed. He said, store up treasure in heaven. And so he juxtaposes those two ideas and it and appears throughout. And it's exactly what he's saying here. Like, listen, don't bury this. Don't bury this thing in the ground. Store up treasure in, in heaven. Then come, follow me. Okay. Now, let's be honest with each other. How many of you have ever read this story and felt bad for the rich young ruler? Come on. See your hands. Um, like, doesn't it seem a little harsh? Like, you ever read a passage and, and you know, you kind of think to yourself, Jesus, you might want to dial that back a little. <laughs> what I've learned is that when, when I feel like maybe Jesus has misspoken... <laughs> It probably has more to do with my misinterpretation of what's happening, my misunderstanding of what's happening, than, than Jesus doing something wrong. Call me crazy. But, and, and those are the moments where I think we can experience the greatest revelation, by the way. Um, what, what's going on here? Like, this seems so extreme, but let me suggest it's because of our parents, it's because we're focused on what Jesus asked him to give up, and we don't even give a second thought to what Jesus was putting on the table. Do, do you realize, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. He said, come follow me. In other words, come, and, and maybe I can put it in these terms. Why don't you come do an internship with me? Now, we live in the internship capital of the world. And people come here all the time because they know the right internship with the right person can open the right door down the road, right? What? Jesus was offering him an internship? Oh, man. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, um, I mean, it's not coincidental that, that you know, a lot of members of Congress were once pages, like they got kind of their feet wet or maybe staffers and, and, and then end up back in, in, in Congress. Um, or, you know, how, how many Supreme Court justices? Can, can I just point something out here? If that's the case, then w if, if somebody was doing an internship with Jesus, they were doing an internship so that they can be a messiah. Oh. 
justices, once clerked in the Supreme Court. Um, and, and, you know, the right internship with the right person, like, wow, valuable, isn't it? Okay. An internship with the Son of God. What kind of price tag do you put on that? Like, has anybody ever been offered a better internship, a greater opportunity? I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking that it's got to count for something on your resume. I did an internship. With this. So Jesus was offering the rich young ruler a resume builder. I'm getting a little um, impatient with this metaphor. Uh, get to the point, Mark. The son of God. Um and so what we do is we focus on what he has to give up, but, but we don't consider what he put on the table. And, uh, of course, it says that this rich young ruler went away sad. Do you remember that? Because he had great... Yeah, let me read it. <clears throat> One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and do an internship with me. That's not what the text says. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, with, but what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And then he said, truly, I say to you, uh, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's not because you've done these things. You do those things because you are a Christian. You have been raised from the dead and given faith. Those are fruits of repentance, by the way. Great wealth. The bottom line is he couldn't let go of what he had. No, the bottom line is, is that he was guilty of breaking the commandments because he didn't love God with all of his heart. Mark, do you know how to use the law lawfully to gain something that was so much better? And honestly, I think most of us are trapped by what we hold on to. And, and really, the very pointed question is... That would be idolatry, breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. You see, that's how you... Oh, man. This weekend would be, what are you holding on to? What are you not willing to sell? For the sake of the kingdom. Because that's the very thing that will be the stumbling block in your relationship with Christ that will allow you to grow to a certain point and grow no further. You will get stuck. So let me see if I have this right. My relationship, whatever kind of relationship this is, is completely predicated on the things I do. Okay. Any gospel here at all? Any, do you guys, I don't smell, no, no gospel. Lots of really stale, stagnant, stifling law, though. Kind of hangs heavy in the air. Spiritually, at that point where you're not willing to give those things up, where you're not willing to make that sacrifice. Mark, are you the perfect example here? Are you keeping this perfectly? Tell us where your relationship with God is stalled out and bottlenecked as a result of the thing you're not willing to give up. And by the way, this is a sword that always cuts both ways. I love, I love kind of juxtaposing this rich young ruler with the disciples because what a contrast, okay? Rich young ruler had everything. Disciples, 
Man, they, they gave up what little they had for the kingdom to follow Jesus. But, but Jesus took this group of, you know, most of them uneducated fishermen, tax collector here and there, like pe- people like didn't have much on their resume, but he took them. In the day and age when the average person never traveled outside a 35-mile radius of their home, he sent them to the ends of the earth. Like I, just at face value, I think like a life without Christ, I mean, I'm just, I'm being blunt because it's the only, a life without Christ is like a life with a 35-mile radius, honestly. It just is. Um, but when you come into relationship with the omnipotent creator who has plans and purposes for your life, he begins to call you out of this tiny little existence. And it's something that's... Um, what about the people who are Christians who spend their entire lives within a 35-mile radius? What about the uh, people who are Christians who were slaves their entire lives and they toiled away while being owned by another person? What was the plans and purposes for their life? Again, this God has a purpose and a plan for you that's so much bigger if you would just come into a relationship with him, whatever kind of relationship. Apparently, it's a coaching relationship. And, you know, a mentor-mentee, protege kind of relationship so that you can have a resume builder. (sighs) So much bigger and so much more important, something, in fact, that's eternal. And so he calls these disciples and he says, listen, you would have lived and died within a stone's throw of the Sea of Galilee. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you the ends of the earth. According that uh, they were witnesses of Christ's death and resurrection of, of the of the, pro, the fulfilled prophecies of the Messiah of Israel, God in human flesh, who died on the cross for the sins of the world they were heralds of the forgiveness of sins because that's what the kingdom of god is it's a kingdom of the forgiveness of sins jesus in luke 24 says that they are to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations (sighs) resume builder my foot yeah that was that was oh what a big part i could see Jesus, I could see poor Peter hanging upside down on the cross in the circus of Nero while Nero is on a chariot, you know, racing around him while he's suffering and languishing and dying. It took him two days to die on the cross. And him sitting there, you know, you know, as the end is drawing nigh and his thoughts are completely, you know, he's beginning to lose the ability to think and him going, you know, I'm just so glad I got to see Rome, man. If it wasn't for Jesus, I would have just stayed in Galilee my whole life. At least I got to see the world. According to Eusebius, the second century historian, Peter went to Italy. John ended up in Asia. James, the son of Zebedee, went to Spain. And even doubting Thomas went all the way to India. But, but more than that, like just, just consider this. They had box seats to every sermon Jesus preached. Right there. They heard it. Oh, yeah. They were they were part of Jesus's VIP posse, man. There's perks. They were they were one of Jesus's peeps. In fact, Jesus had them on speed dial and would send them text messages. Come right out of his mouth. They were eyewitnesses to every miracle he performed. I I just and, and the two that I like thinking about is like 
They they filleted the miraculous catch of fish. Oh man! Imagine how boring their life would have been with in, oh, without being able to do that. Fish that were just—it was a miracle. They filleted the miracle. They ate the miracle. Miracle tasted so good. Um, they drank the water that Jesus turned into wine. They drank it. Wow! See. Here, here's the fundamental mistake that most of us make, and, and it has to do with value attribution. We accumulate the wrong things, don't we? We're crazy. That's what we are. Because we buy things we can't afford to impress people we don't like. <laughs> You know where, where we end up? Because I, I picture this rich young ruler at the very end of his life. I guarantee this. He's still asking, what am I still lacking? He's still asking the same question. You know why? Because he held on to what he had. He had everything. Uh, Mark, dude, at the end of his life, uh, at this point, the rich young ruler has long since gone into eternity. We pray that he repented and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. Because the thing he lacked was perfect obedience to the law. He thought he was keeping it. He wasn't. As a result of it, he is a wretched and wicked sinner who earned and deserved God's wrath because of his sinfulness. Just like you, just like me. The thing he lacked was faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Oh. I don't know if there was a moment of revelation. There might have been a moment when he realized that everything was nothing. What a devastating moment. To realize that everything you have accumulated is of no value. So many people end up at that place because we never do the value attribution. We know we don't we don't really stop to consider what are we really investing our lives in. I mean, I think it was Stephen Covey who said it, but but we we climb the ladder of success only to discover this leaning against the wrong wall. I, one of my twitters this week was just this little thought. Now it has to be little, less than 140 characters. But it it was this, my greatest fear is succeeding at the wrong thing. Because that would be succeeding and failing at the same time. I don't want to invest my life in something that has no eternal value. And I doubt that there's a person that disagrees with that. It's just, after a message like this, you got to do the hard work of looking in the mirror, or maybe looking in your checkbook, maybe looking at your calendar, What am I really prioritizing? What am I really valuing? What is my life being invested in? Peter asked a question, by the way, at the very, very end of that story. Like, and and I love it because it's such an honest question. He says, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. 
So what will there be for us? It's, it's almost like he's second guessing, a little bit of doubt. Like, Jesus, it seems like the rich young ruler just won because he still has everything and we gave up everything. It seems like he might have the most toys at the end. And does that mean he wins? And Jesus says, trust me. Those who have given up, left family, house, sacrificed things, given those things up. You'll have a hundred times as much in the life to come. And now, it's almost like Jesus says, you can have your cake and eat it too. Trust me. Whatever you give up for the kingdom. I, I, Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who, gives, who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that one more time. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So they sold everything. And I love this. In his joy, in his joy. Can we stop throwing pity parties for ourselves? You know, I'm a, I'm a semantic guy. I listen to language very carefully. And... There are two kinds of language that I wasn't planning on sharing this, so it's a little dangerous, but two things drive me, drive me crazy. One is an entitlement mentality. I don't deserve anything God has given me. So we ought to just be grateful. Everything the Lord's blessed us with. An entitlement mentality eats you alive from the inside out. Second thing that drives me crazy is when we say we have to do this or have to do that. You don't have to do anything. Get to. We... we, we we turn privileges like prayer into these obligations that we have to do. Are you kidding me? We have access to the omnipotent, the almighty one. All right. And how do we have that access? Is it because we've sold everything that we have? Or is it because Christ has sold everything he has and purchased us with his own blood? Is our access to God because of our law-keeping and, and our good works? Or is it because of the good work of Christ? I'm not hearing about the cross here. I am hearing that he's undeserving. Yeah, that's great. Tell me why you're undeserving, Mark. Tell me about your sin. Tell these people about their sin. And tell them about their Savior who died on the cross to die for all of their sins. Access to have a conversation with the God of the universe. And you're telling me that's something we have to do? No, that's something we get to do. We only get to do it because of what Christ has done. Need a paradigm shift. See, I think if this story, if I was the main character in this story, like, he begrudgingly... Sold everything, <laughs> you know, to get that. Yet the scriptures say that Christ willingly laid down his life. That thing, all right. Oh, killing me, you know? But no, it says in his joy, like, man, he couldn't sell his stuff fast enough. Like, let me unload this worthless stuff. 
so I can get the thing of true, true value. I think we need a paradigm shift. Where's the gospel here, dude? Because it was Christ who sold everything, who bought the farm for us. Um, one of the greatest joys in life is a good investment. Bad investments, not so much. I've had my fair share of those. The good investment feels good. Feels real good. Let me put it in spiritual terms. This week, I put on one of the hats that I wear, and that's as a trustee of a charitable trust. And so several times a year, myself and a few others gather together to give away money to ministries, to missionaries, to things that have kingdom value. And it's one of the great joys and privileges of my life. Honestly, it's, it's about as much fun as you can have. Um, and so this week we gave some grants away and, and I, we always pray before and pray after because it's like, oh Lord, help us know how to invest, where to invest. And would you take these investments and let them advance your kingdom? And, and we do it in such a circumspect way. And, and it's just such a joy to do that. But I experienced a rare joy this week because one of the trustees invited a student um, who's studying for ministry to come and have lunch with us. And he is a recipient of one of the grants that we had given. And we sat around that lunch table, and I was totally unprepared for the story that he was going to share. Uh, two years ago, he was an alcoholic, suicidal atheist. Literally, I mean, as he shared his story, he's like, I was just at a point in my life where, honestly, there was nothing to live for. I was just like, there was just no reason to continue to live. And, and you know, struggled with, with alcohol, suicidal thoughts, didn't believe in God. But he had a friend. He had a friend. And this friend, the age of 22, was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus. This friend had a relationship with Christ, and it was that relationship with Christ that allowed him to walk through, to go from 6'1", 230 pounds to 175 pounds, barely hanging on to life and eventually dying from cancer. But this alcoholic, suicidal atheist saw the way that he lived and died, and it impacted him. Because this kid that died from cancer never let go of that hope he had in Christ, the hope that was beyond death, an eternal hope that Christ had put in his heart. And, and at the funeral, uh, one of the trustees preached that sermon, and he knew that Psalm 62.2 was this kid's favorite psalm. He said, the, the Lord alone is my rock and my salvation. And, and he, he gave everybody there a rock. Everybody there got a rock, including this this alcoholic, suicidal atheist. And, and he shared with us over lunch that he took that rock, went outside the church, and ironically, there was a big rock, a big stone outside the church. He got on that rock, and he gave his life to Christ. And I can't even put into words, how, how does someone experience that kind of transformation in two years? I have no idea. 
But here's a kid who's full of life, full of vision, who knows that God has a plan and purpose for his life, been totally changed. And I had to hold back the tears the entire lunch because I just kept thinking, oh God, thank you for the privilege of investing in this kid's life. I'm just going to point blank say it. At the end of the day, you will not regret a second of time or an ounce of energy or a penny of money that you invest in the kingdom. You just won't. In fact, ironically, the only regret we'll have is that we didn't invest more, that we didn't place more value on what was of supreme value. Oh, I I love. Again, the problem with his interpretation here is is that the parable itself says that the guy sold everything. Who's the one who sold everything for this pearl, this hidden treasure? Oh, I know, Christ did. Love this, John Piper. Uh, this is so. This is so good. He said, "All sin comes from not putting supreme value on the glory of God." Yes, he's talking first commandment there. All sin is a result of not putting supreme value on God. That means we do not fear, love, and trust in God above all things. All sin comes from our rebellion to God. I think you're even taking Piper out of context. Wow. All right. I got to move to a close. Let me close with this. Let me close with this. Famous philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. Existentialist, by the way, I wouldn't, I don't really enjoy existentialism. Yeah, How do I sum up existentialism? The reason why you're miserable today is because you didn't commit suicide yesterday. Just, you know, saying. Once told a parable about two robbers who broke into a jewelry store, but instead of stealing the jewels, all they did was rearrange the price tags. They put the high price tags on the cheap jewelry. They put the bargain prices on the rare, precious jewels. And for several weeks, no one noticed. People bought cheap jewelry for exorbitant prices and rare jewels for bargain prices. And the point of Kierkegaard's story was pretty simple. He was saying that we have a difficult time discerning between what is valuable and what is worthless. And if that analogy is true of any culture, I wonder if it's true of ours. You know, this that analogy lends itself back to the gospel. Because who were the ones who Christ forgave their sins prostitutes tax collectors lepers gentiles all of the outcasts of society those who were considered to be worthless by self-righteous legalism 
the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, all of those who were considered to be worthless, scoundrels, scumbags, those were the ones that Christ came to forgive. Sinful women, tax collectors, fishermen, you, me. Christ gave all that he had, literally everything, to purchase us. That's what I call good news. Jesus said the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. But can I suggest that he doesn't steal in overt ways, generally speaking. Very covert. He switches price tags. The way he steals is perfectly pictured in this analogy. He simply switches the price tags and get us to value things that have no eternal value. And our lives get robbed from us. That's called idolatry, by the way. Uh, that's really what our sinful rebellion against God is all about. Us solving that problem and, and uncommitting the sin of idolatry, we still are guilty of committing that sin. Somebody has to pay the price for us. Notice I said price. Who's the one who pays the price? Yeah, Christ, in his blood, he gives up everything to purchase and redeem us. Ah. <sighs> And we don't even put up a fight. That's because we are sinful by nature. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. You think the, the solution is that we have a better outlook? Oh, I want to keep preaching. You you haven't even really started yet because you haven't proclaimed, you haven't preached God's law to show us our wickedness and our sin before a righteous and holy God, and you have not proclaimed Jesus Christ and his forgiveness of sins for us. You keep talking about this uh, pearl of great price, like we're the ones who are supposed to sacrifice everything, yet we are the ones needing to be saved. We're the ones who need to be redeemed. Can you possibly bring up Christ as the one who is the one who bought the farm, who's the one who died on the cross for us, paid everything using his blood? Now, by the way, I want to point something out here. Mark is going to bring this up in just a second. The problem is he's going to bring it up just in the form of a question. He's not going to really make it a point. He's kind of kind of throw it out and let the question sit out there in the air and then turn right back around and talk about the things we got to be we have to sacrifice. So I want you to listen carefully. You're going to hear something of a gospel nugget, but don't let don't be fooled. This isn't really a gospel nugget. This is more or less a you know, I wonder if listen carefully. We all want the pearl of great price, don't we? We just don't want to give up anything for it. What's interesting about this parable is you could flip it 
Here he goes. Now listen carefully. This is going to sound like the gospel, but keep in mind, this is a question. And watch how quick he's got to throw the question out, kind of let it linger in the air for a little bit. I wonder if we could flip this thing and then immediately just kind of move on. Just watch how he does this. Seems to me like Jesus is the one who gave up everything. Bingo. For us. That's right. We're the sinners. He's the Savior. Now watch. Is it possible that maybe we are the pearl of great price? That's a question. He's going to let it linger in the air. Now watch what happens. He's not going to proclaim that to be true. He's just asking the question. Watch. To him. In another place in the mind of it, it says that we are in the apple of God's eye. It uses language like that. We're the pearl of great price to God. The question is, is, is the flip side true? What kind of value are we placing? And is it possible that we've given up to the point of sacrifice? So, that, see, I don't even think that counts as an official gospel nugget. It was just a question he kind of threw out in the time. Is it possible? Mark, yes, of course it's possible. That's the whole point. Oh, man, doesn't understand the gospel either. And felt self-righteous about it. I, I, uh, hard time going here without really extrapolating on it, but... Man, this is... Yeah, you don't want to extrapolate on the gospel. You had plenty of time to do it. The sermon itself is almost 44 minutes long, and you have... Oh, man. It's all about you, what you got to do. You don't even understand proper law and gospel. Story about betting the farm. This is a story about I'm giving up everything for the kingdom because it's a supreme value. No, it's a story about Jesus Christ giving up everything for us to purchase and redeem us. The question that you asked is answered in the affirmative. Yes, that's really, we are the pearl of great price. And he's the one who sold and lost everything. He was dead, hanging naked, dead, and scourged on the cross. He gave up everything, laid down his own life to purchase us with his own blood. You know what? Some of us aren't even willing to bet 10% on it. So that means that we're not the ones that this is about because it says that we're the, the guy sold everything. <sighs> Did tell you I love you, right? We need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. Are there some sacrifices that God is calling us to make? Oh, give me a break. Why don't you preach the law lawfully and let God do his condemning work through the law, his killing work through the law, and then call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins for offending a holy and just God by breaking his commandments? Beyond what we've experienced let me give you some good news. Good news equals gospel. You can tell me about Christ's death on the cross for my sins. I have a theory. Oh, the good news is you have a theory. Lovely. That, that that's gonna help me out. Thanks. I. Ooh. Oh, how beautiful your feet are because you're bringing me good news that you have a theory. That no one's ever sacrificed anything for God. Oh, sure. We've made temporal sacrifices.
You, do you think that went up on your on your own, or are you actually exegeting God's word on that one? Let me ask you a question. If you always get back more than you gave up, have you sacrificed anything at all? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. May God stir something deep within our souls. May we have the courage to reevaluate our lives, ask the tough questions, be willing to make those difficult sacrifices for the kingdom. This law, 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 no gospel, law. I mean, the gospel was thrown out as a question. Is it possible to flip this thing around? Apparently not, because he didn't want to go there. Oh. This I close with. Is it the third or fourth closing? It doesn't matter. You haven't closed yet. <laughs> and uh, this is just a challenge. I really think that many people think they're following Jesus, but really it's more about Jesus following them. How are you defining following Jesus, by the way? Repenting and trusting in him? For the forgiveness of your sins, or you know, making Jesus your uh, your mentor, you know, doing an internship with him as a resume builder. I'm a, I'm a little. I think your question of what it mean, how you're defining a Christ follower, is a little dubious at this point, based upon the content of your sermon. I think many of us have in, invited Jesus and said, "Come, follow me," and and we don't want to go anywhere without Jesus. Right? But we just want him to follow us wherever we want to go. But you're not experiencing the full adventure. Give me a break. You're not experiencing the full adventure. Look at, apparently you're singing, sinning against yourself. If this is what sin is, see, you know, sinning is when you sell yourself short and you, you're not experiencing the full adventure. <gasps> oh, no. Could you, this is terrible. This is just uh, give me a break. Could you come up with a more man-centered and ridiculous, stupid definition? Oh. The, the fulfillment, the fruit, the joy, what God wants you to experience until you come to that point where, all right, Jesus is no longer about you following me. It's about me following you. Let's say I'm coming to that point. It's going to let go of it. I'm going to bet the farm. I'm going to gamble my life on Christ. Oh, how brave of you. <sighs> oh, some of you, today is your day. Today's the day. You need to make that decision. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now. Lord, I realize that... What are you praying for? This is one of those messages that has a little bit of an edge to it. It doesn't have an edge at all. Me sinning against myself and not having the full adventure. Which of the apostles preached that one? By the way, none of them. I think there's a part of us that... It, it would be easy to become defensive... And it would be easy for us to maybe use some rationalizations and justifications for why we're not giving up more for you. The parable said the guy gave up everything. 
If we're going to interpret it correctly the way you're interpreting it, that means we have to give up everything. Not some things, not part of something, not 10%, not 33%, 100%. That means 100% obedience. I can only think of one person in all of human history that gave up everything and was perfectly 100% obedient to God. That is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The thing you threw out as the question, is it possible to flip this? Yeah, that was. you should have flipped it at the beginning and stuck to that. Because then you would have been proclaiming the true biblical gospel. You would have been interpreting this through Christ and his, him crucified for our sins. Instead, it's all about me and the things I've got to give up. But see, even now you're softening the sermon that you think has such an edge. You're basically saying, is there more that we could be giving up? But I pray that we would be honest and that as your spirit convicts us, that we would respond to it with life change, that we would make some decisions, that we would... This is all law. This is... There is no gospel here. Unbelievable. The gospel was not even truly a footnote. It was a question that hung in the air and then got quickly quickly wafted away like a puff of smoke. Put higher value on you. Oh, God, first of all, would you just give us a, a, a deeper appreciation for the sacrifice that you've made for us, for the fact that you sacrificed your life on the cross so that we could be set free from our sin. Here's a gospel nugget as basically a side note in a prayer at the end of the sermon. No, this wasn't the main point of this wasn't a main point for anything in the sermon. It's now we're talking about the Christ and what Christ has done for us on the cross while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. <sighs> Hey, Mark, you ever thought about making the gospel like the main thing in the sermon? Oh, God, may we place supreme value on that if we have nothing. This isn't even gospel because it's all about the thing I've got. May we play. Christ placed supreme value on us by shedding his blood on the cross for us. Nothing else, but we have that. We have everything. Lord, for those that need to make that decision this weekend... Uh, By the way, uh, Pelagianism is a heresy. I want to let everybody know that. And it's not possible for anybody who's unregenerate to make a decision for Jesus. Just want to let you know it's what the Bible says. Or maybe someone that for the first time needs to step out in faith and follow you. Needs to accept that invitation. May they have the courage to do it right here, right now. Lord, for those that maybe they're just being honest, it's been more about you following them. May something fundamentally, may the tectonic plates in their spirit shift. May they come to a point where I'm going to give it all up to follow you. Uh, Which person gives it all up to follow Jesus? Can you name one person that gave it all up? Lord, I don't know what that looks like. I, I don't think you always... Cl- yeah, you don't. Trust me, you don't. You're a wretched sinner who needs a Savior. You need to repent of this kind of preaching and actually preach the gospel. 
and give the comforting words of Christ dying on the cross for all of our sins as the main section of, of every one of your sermons? Because this is all just self-righteous pietism at best. Call us to do the most difficult thing first. Often it's just the working of your Holy Spirit. And if we're obedient in the little risks, in the little opportunities, then you give us bigger opportunities and bigger risks and you grow up. Hang on a second. This is the sound of me beating my head against the desk. <clears throat> Three times, one for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that no one would walk away discouraged. <sighs> Yeah, everybody listening to uh, you that's a listener of mine on my radio program is going to walk away discouraged at that sermon. Trust me on that because they understand they didn't hear the gospel. But that we would just make a a commitment that whatever percentage we're sold out to you. Whatever percentage we're sold out to you. You're not even dealing with the text correctly. The text says sold everything. There's one who did that. It's Christ. Is it possible that we could flip this? Uh, yeah, that was the whole point. Flip it. You, you got the right interpretation. Right now, that we would up the ante, that we would be... Up the ante. Oh, yeah, this is all on you guys. You better start upping that ante there. Otherwise, you're probably not going to get the kingdom of heaven. Because it's 100%. It demands 100%. Good luck. Best of luck to you. 100% is what's demanded of you. More sold out to you that we would move to that place of complete devotion. Move to that place of complete devotion. Which of us in our sinful nature is capable of that? Not even the Apostle Paul pulled that one off because we read in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I uh, do want to do, I don't do. Who's going to save me from this body of sin? (sighs) To Christ. Lord, may each of us, as we leave this place this weekend, be headed in that direction. I pray. Oh, I hope you get there before you die. You may not even make it to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. (sighs) That was actually worse than I thought. Oh, boy. It's not easy listening to these sermons a few times because I have to screen them first and then you know, kind of figure out what you know, what's going on in the sermon and then, you know, which one am I going to do? And then when I do it again, sometimes I hear things I missed when I was screening it because I'm multitasking. Folks, listen. Let me read the parable of the pearl of great price for you, okay? We go to Matthew chapter 13, okay? Verses 44, 45, and 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he went, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Yet we read in scriptures that Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And then we learn that Jesus Christ purchased the church with his own blood. If you make this about the thing you have to do, you leave people in despair. If you interpret this in light of the thing you have to do, remember it says, says, sells all that he has, sold all that he had. That's the requirement. It's all, it's 100%. If this is about the thing that you have to do, 
you can't possibly fulfill this requirement because you can't sell all that you have. You are incapable of perfect obedience. Yet there is one who was perfectly obedient, who did give up all that he had and endured death, even death on a cross, for your sins and mine. And he's the one who purchased us. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who sets us free. And he considers us to be a great treasure. That's the good news of the parable of the pearl of great price in the hidden in the hidden treasure is that your great God and Savior did it all perfectly for us to purchase and redeem us. The kingdom of God is about the promised Messiah who crushes the head of the snake and his heel is bruised. The kingdom of God is about our great God and Savior coming to earth and being born of the Virgin Mary and nursing at the breast of Mary, living a perfect life under the law for you and redeeming and purchasing you, a lost and poor, sinful being. It's a treasure that is hidden, a treasure that, you know, no one would have seen it for what it is. But Christ raises you from the dead through the preaching of this gospel and makes you an heir of the kingdom, all by grace, as a gift. That's the good news offered in the pearl of great price that Mark Battison just threw out as a question and then let it waft away. Sad, very sad. Well, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that's right. This is listener-supported radio. That means we need your help in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to other people. If you are growing and learning through the program and the sermon reviews and the Bible teaching that we do here, please support us. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, and that'll redirect you to a page there on the Internet where you can uh, send in your contributions securely online. Or you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we are now officially at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And it's this point where I remind you all, as is our tradition, that if you would like to uh, send me an email and give me your feedback, I would love to hear it. You can uh, email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can uh, ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian as well. That's right, at Pirate Christian. You can find me there at Twitter. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>